All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to be with you once again uh, today. This is a beautiful day in New York City, October 30th, 2018. Before I talk more about today's show, I do like to let you know that I am the editor of a newsletter called uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. been publishing it actually since 1981, so that tells you a little bit about my age and uh, my experience, actually. I've been in this business for a long time. Miningstocks.com is a place to go to sign up for that letter. You can call our office here in New York City during normal work hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I would also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, uh, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling, at ChenPicks.com. Chen is especially astute in the biotech sector, uh, and he's done very, very well for his subscribers and for his own investors uh, Chen Lin, ChenPicks.com is the place to go for Chen's ideas. Um, and Michael Oliver, who will be with me shortly, OliverMSA.com. Jot that address down, OliverMSA.com, because Michael is providing a special low-cost service, uh, $299 a year for investors focused primarily, or at least investors that are honed in on the gold and silver markets. I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, I'd like to invite you to continue sending your questions, criticisms, praises, or whatever comments you have along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Sponsors for today's show, Great Bear Resources, Novo Resources, Sandstorm Gold, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining Inc., Uranium Energy, and Klondike Gold Corp. I've titled today's show Barbarians at and Inside the Gate. Doug Nolan and Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me, and uh, Michael Oliver very shortly will be uh, commenting on the markets as he sees them today. In uh, 56 BC, Cicero wrote, and I quote, A nation can survive its fools and even the ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. An enemy at the gates is less formidable. For he is known and carries his banner openly. But the traitor moves among those within the gate freely, his sly whispers rustling throughout all the alleys heard in the very halls of government itself. End of quote. While Americans are expressing concern about thousands of people from Latin America threatening to enter the United States illegally at our, at our southern border, the origin of more threatening global financial insolvency is without any doubt 
the poisonous Keynesian religion that fosters unrealistic dreams driving the world to financial Armageddon. No doubt the idea that the United States is the promised land of milk and honey without any natural limits is created by Keynesian communist economic theory. But alas, we still live in a world of four-dimensional restrictions, and so I'm happy to tell you that Doug Nolan will help us get a read on the financial pulse of the markets and the realities of this marketplace and help provide us some, uh, with some advice as to how we can navigate what looks to be some very troublesome waters ahead. Another danger is deception of reality. Uh, another danger is the reception of reality in the financial markets, and it seems that the, there has been a great deal of deception and disinformation with respect to Novo Resources and its project in Western Australia, where recent bulk samples, which were better than good, have been viewed by naysayers as non-economic, even though the grades are far better than almost any other open pit resource that you'll find anywhere on the planet. Dr. Henning will be with me to talk about the bulk samples results that he released uh, last Friday and also to tell us about an exciting new block of tenements the company has picked up that are even more exciting than the Karatha tenements uh, that he reported on last week. Although you will have to wait a few minutes for Dr. Henning, but I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with us right now. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Really, always good to have you here. You're our most frequent guest. You're here most frequently for a reason, because I have faith in the work that you do day in, day out, uh, the, uh, the tremendous number of reports that come the way to regular investors, and you also have recently started a service for uh, for people that are really focused primarily, or to a great extent, people who are focused on gold and silver. And as you pointed out recently, you believe the time has come when people might do very well to be focused more on gold and silver, and uh, people should go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com to sign up for this special service or uh, for your other service. Uh, Michael, uh, stocks have been having a tough time over the last several weeks, but uh, could this be, might this actually be the time? You know, I'm, I'm still hearing people say, great time to buy the dips. What are your thoughts? No, it's a fair market. Uh there are a few numbers left that we've got that would indicate a full-fledged player market. You know, I would stamp it with a stamp, you know, seal uh-huh. the file. Uh, and they're down where I think the market's going next. The S&P 500 is in the 2600s. It approached 2600 yesterday. The low of the year is 2550 or just below there in February and also in March. So there's a pair of lows around 2550. I think those are coming out probably before the end of the year, possibly within weeks. Wow. And then I think there'll be a good rally, though. Now, I think there's a chance that you could get down into the below 2,400, demonstrably taking out the low of the year and expanding the range of the year. And at that point, I see enough reason that you could have a counter-trend rally of some significance, you know, maybe even back up to 2,600 or something like that uh, by the end of the year. So you end up the year, we closed last year at 2,667, as I recall. So we're, we're down in the year a little bit right now, no big deal. But uh-huh. I think there, speculators and investors are thinking that 2550 area, they could defend against that. I don't think they can. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's, you know, as the top in 2000 occurred and the 2007 and 8 top occurred, if you'll look back, even once all of our metrics, momentum-based long-term metrics, were broken and the market uh, dropped sharply, uh, and from our point of view, it was over, still you had strong counter-trend rallies uh, after a first flush. So, you know, you get, you get your break, 
people it goes deeper than people think, but then it bottoms and then they jump on board and you get a nice strong rally for a month or two and they're impressed by it and they think, see, buy the dip. The problem mm-hmm. is you've already broken the backbone of the momentum of the trend. And I'm talking about the trend that goes back to 2009, not just uh-huh. back to 2016. Now, sure. I think that also in this process, if you look at what's happened, by putting out a report today on this, uh, XME, which is the base metal miners primarily, it has a few gold miners in it, but it's primarily biased towards steel, coal, uh, aluminum, uh, copper, so forth, like producers of those, those metals. Uh, it has moved with the S&P pretty much in lockstep since 2016 lows. Now, if you recall, the GDX and gold bottomed in early 2016, late 2015, and also surged into summer of 2016, fully accompanying XME's rise and the S&P's rise. Yeah. But then at that point, the gold and the gold miners crested. Gold went more or less sideways to down with some sharp corrections, but, you know, hanging around either side of 1250 to 1350, swinging in there. And GDX went down, and it made a secondary low in August of this year. Now, while the GDX and gold were selling off, especially in July and August of this year, where we had that sharp drop, if you look mm-hmm. at the charts, you'll see that XME was having a secondary rally, totally opposite to, to GDX. Uh-huh. Base metal miners were going up, and so was the S&P up to its highs that peaked like five weeks ago or so. Mm-hmm. Now, the last five weeks, what's happened? S&P has cracked real hard, much harder than anybody expected, and I think there's more to come. XME has dropped sharply, Freeport McMoran in the pack there, yeah. whereas GDX and gold have rallied. Now, GDX, most people looking at the chart would say, well, I'm not quite sure it backed off some this week, which is fine. But gold went up 6% from its August low, and is right now 5.5% off its August low. So there's some precisely con- contrasting moves there between the base metal miners with the S&P, Upside mm-hmm. for 2016 through 17 and 18. Now downside. While mm-hmm. GDX looks like it's finished its August low correction, gold has, I think. And they've been moving up opposite, literally week by week over the past five weeks. They've been total opposites. I think that's the beginning of, of evidence of investor preference shift out of stocks and into not miners in general, metals miners, but gold miners. Mm-hmm. While oh. they've been divesting themselves of base metal miners, mm-hmm. so I think there's there's some good technical evidence there that that is underway, and I think that's been very important for gold, for the believers in gold who distrust monetary uh, uh, game playing, mm-hmm. and but then I think in about 2016, once it turned up later in the year, the S and P they got back on that bandwagon again, thinking ah we don't need gold, central right. banks are in charge here, right? And they pursued what? the stock market and economically sensitive metals as opposed to monetary metals. I think that's mm-hmm. reversing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, certainly what we saw in 2008, 2009. We saw a move towards the monetary metals. And speaking of monetary metals, then, uh, how, did, how has silver been performing? Silver is, uh, I had uh, specific technical reasons. I did not really want to see it at certain levels this month on the upside because of, of a unique situation with uh, monthly momentum that uh, I didn't want it to close above 1460, to tell you the truth. Right now it's mm-hmm. below there, and I like it to stay below there between now and tomorrow's close. Like it's mm-hmm. 1447, last I saw. It's having an up month. Uh, and it bounced uh, well off the lows of August as well. But I think that the uh, it won't take much for silver gold and the gold miners starting next month 
to uh, regain this recovery from the August low and launch a little even more strongly. And I, when I, I say not much, uh, GDX is above 19. It wouldn't take but about 19 and a half to the 20 zone, somewhere in that where we've already been this past month, to launch it again, you know, get some real oomph in it. Uh, mm-hmm. Gold, uh, there's a major level I see, uh, 1299, that if we ever close a month at 1300 or higher, that 1360 stuff that we've seen for the last few years, every rally seems to peak at around 1360 or so, yeah. that's coming out. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, I think we're in the process next month of, of regaining, and if, if the markets go up just a little bit, like silver goes up a half a buck or so from here next month, that, uh, that they're going for another leg of this recovery from the August low, and I think a stronger one. All right, and Michael, with just, uh, just a few minutes, with, with just a few minutes, with just actually 30 seconds left, actually, my engineer is saying, uh, with, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the divorce that's coming on here between uh, gold and gold shares and the XME and, um, uh, you know, the S&P. Uh, what about a divorce between the equity markets and the debt markets? Because it seems to me, and I was just reading an article in Zero Hedge, they were suggesting uh, that they're, for the first time in a long time, we're starting to see, you know, when stocks go down, uh, a lot of times the equity mar- or the uh, treasury markets are going down too. Do you see that in your technicals anywhere? Yeah, Evidence I see that a both markets rally in the bonds likely if the S and P takes the next leg down that I expect it to take over the next month or so, which is to say break through the twenty six hundred, spook the guys at twenty five fifty, and run those stops. In other words, get break sharply through the lows of the year. I think the support is under twenty four hundred. It's a temporary support, but I think you could get there. Now that's a pretty set on another couple hundred points. I think in that next couple hundred points, bonds could rally sharply, but okay. it is in the longer term context a rally in a major downtrend in price, higher yields, in other words. So even yeah. if bonds do have a countertrend rally to the S&P, which I would expect, mm-hmm. uh, it's not an investment trade, it's a trade. Mm-hmm. All right, very good. We'll have to leave it go with that. Michael, thank you so much for joining us again. Always a pleasure thank to you, hear your insights and very valuable for our, for our listeners. Thank you so much. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because I'll have Dr. Quentin Henning to talk about Novel Resources. Some very exciting things going on down there, notwithstanding the share price, which hasn't been that strong lately, but I think it may be a good time to pay special attention to Dr. Quentin Henning. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 
Turning Hard Times into Good Times is brought to you in part by Sandstorm Gold Royalties. Sandstorm Gold Royalties is a different kind of gold company. They purchase royalties on select mining operations and receive a percentage of the revenue in return. Sandstorm now has a portfolio of over 185 gold royalties around the world. See how gold royalties differ from other gold mining investments at sandstormgold.com. That's sandstormgold.com. Sandstorm Gold Royalties trades on the TSX as SSL and the NYSE as SAND. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions for taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Hanning, the chairman and president of Novo Resources. Thanks for joining me again, Quentin. Thank you, Jay. Uh, you know, I know getting to your project in Western Australia, I know there were weather-related uh, delays in receiving bulk samples, and it kind of drove a lot of investors crazy because they've been anxiously waiting with bated breath to find out what your next samples would be. Um, and you've had those issues, but finally the initial batch of assays did come back last Friday. And from what I can see, they were very good compared and actually compare very favorably to any surface mineable gold resource that I've seen uh, coming into the picture recently. Values up to 10.4 grams per ton were recovered. Um, well, you, you reported on both an upper and a lower conglomerate levels there at uh, Comet Well. Uh, and I also noted, uh, Quentin, I don't know how many people paid attention, but you were getting very high recovery, uh, recoveries as well from, uh, uh, from gravity. And so uh, suggesting that maybe the metallurgy should be fairly simple. Can you comment on, on what you have learned so far from Comet Well and, and, and to the extent possible at this early stage, provide an idea of potential economics of, uh, of a deposit like this? Sure thing, Jay. Look, uh, Comet Well uh, is, uh, you know, an interesting project. It's probably the most challenging project I've ever worked on. Uh, you know, the nuggety gold and uh, mm-hmm. the nature of this deposit is quite a bit different than, than people are used to. But but nonetheless, we've got uh, bulk sample results now that give us an indicative picture of where things are headed or what we're, we're actually seeing in the ground. Um, as you said, the grades that we've we've got back from the two different horizons, the upper cannonball conglomerate and the lower cannonball, Balking Lomer, uh, have returned uh, what are very respectable grades for, say, a near-surface deposit. This is uh, this is exciting news. It's been a long, hard uh, journey to get here, but now we can say something, you know, somewhat intelligent about the the property and its potential. Um, your comment about gravity recovery is accurate. Uh, we do see potential. You know, obviously, it's nuggety, and and the, the data that we returned uh, in the news release talks about that and talks about what kind of percents of, uh, you know, coarse gold or gravity recoverable gold we might see from this. Very encouraging. There's also optionality with looking at things like ore sorting and things like this. So mm-hmm. we're very excited 
in general. Uh, and, you know, I know you got a lot of questions, so I'll try to keep my answers reasonably brief. Yeah, well, of course, uh, as, a, as the project progresses, we'll get the details. We'll learn to know about the uh, ability to reduce uh, energy costs by sorting and so on and so forth. Uh, these are the pleasures of, of watching projects grow for sure. But we want to stay focused on the economics. Now, you recently had a, a, did an interview, I think it was last week with, or maybe earlier this week even, with Corey Fleck. And uh, you made some comparisons with the famous Whitwatersrand deposit. And I know that your theory has taken you to Western Australia because you thought this could be the place where there could be another Whitwatersrand type of deposit or something similar to it. Whitwatersrand is the largest, I think, most significant gold deposit ever found in the history of man. So this is no small issue if, if you're right. And I think what, if I heard you correctly, Quentin, what you told Corey last week that early stages, and again, I would underline the, the, you know, the idea that it's early stages, that your bulk samples are showing the sort of thickness and grades that make it comparable to what they mined at the WITS. Uh, do I have that right? Yeah, let me, let me give you a little detail. I did talk about this in a recent interview with Corey Fleck last Friday. Uh, I'll kind of go over the same uh, assumptions that I used in that interview. Uh, what we find at Comet well, is that we have roughly three meters in aggregate of grades in, in the neighborhood of about two and a half or three grams. Now, if you use a density of 2.85 tons per cubic meter and you know, to start calculating the, uh, the gold endowment, say, for one square kilometer, you get somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 tons. That's, uh, that's remarkably similar to the gold endowment seen in conglomerates of the bits. We're talking about very different conglomerates. Uh, in the bits, we have pebble conglomerates. Uh, the gold is much finer. You know, a lot of differences that I've talked about in, in news releases gone past. But, but in the bits in general, uh, they mine at about 1.1 meter thickness, uh, regardless of the thickness of the reef. So the stopes are 1.1 meter. We'll call it a, a, a density of two point. It's mostly quartz. And the grades are roughly, you know, say seven grams. Even that might be a bit generous these days. But over a square kilometer, the bits uh, type deposit of those num- numbers that I've just presented would yield, again, about 20 to 25 tons of gold. So remarkably, the, the endowment on a, uh, you know, a square kilometer basis, at least, is quite similar. Okay. So helping some of us that are mathematically challenged into ounces per ton or ounces per square oh, kilometer. Sorry, sorry. Yes. Uh, sorry. Roughly. Roughly translated, we're talking around 700,000 ounces per square kilometer on using those assumptions. All right. Um, when I looked at the grades and thickness that you're talking about, I mean, and, and these kind of numbers, uh, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss, Quentin, to understand why the markets sold off on that news. Do you have any thoughts about that? You know, I, I would say that there were expectations that we would have, uh, you know, 10 gram plus material uh, consistently. Through these these horizons, I think the sell-off probably reflects uh, some people's view that that that's what they expected, and they're not willing to stick with the story. But mm-hmm. you know, surprisingly, the shares did not sell off. Uh, you know, much past they say the first. Uh, I don't know. I didn't keep track of it in re- real time, but say after an hour or so, they settled down quite. Uh, dramatically and you know people digested the news in fact i would consider you know the results of trading on friday as uh you know a vote of um, 
confidence in, in the numbers that we presented. Uh, Quinn, I'd like to switch gears a little bit to uh, your press release that you sent out early at the, before the market opened today, having to do with Egina. E- that's an area where you've recently picked up some, uh, some gold-bearing conglomerate reefs uh, some 120 kilometers east of your Caratha gold project that we were just talking about. You made a remark on your uh, interview with Corey Fleck uh, last Friday that as good as Comet Well is, if the Egina project has had been available to you, you, w- you would have likely had started there first because it's even better. Can you tell our listeners what has you so excited about Egina? Yes, you know, Jay, you know, I, I said that in, in actuality, it, it's, it's true. Like, I, I wasn't uh, joking around. Um, Edgina is, has been on our radar roughly the same time as Comet Well. We learned about the, the gold and the similarities of the gold that's seen at Edgina, uh, you know, similarities to that seen at Comet Well way back in around June of 2017. Uh, we also recognized that it might be coming from conglomerates. In other words, prospectors were finding gold and they were showing it to us and saying, hey, you know, if you think Comet Well's good you should look at this uh we we had uh we did stake some tenements out there last year some expiration licenses and then we we struck a, an option arrangement with farno mcmahon a private company operating in the area and we watched uh farno do the, the company do some mining uh remarkably what we saw the gold that they produced produced uh it looks very similar uh, i talked about it in the news release today very similar to the gold from comet well uh, we found Lots of boulders of conglomerate. This is a uh, weathered conglomerate that's washed down into the ter- uh, the terrace flats. And the boulders of conglomerate look for all the world like the conglomerate that come at well. So our, our logical conclusion is the gold at Edgina is derived from weathering and erosion of Fortescue-type conglomerates. Uh, so uh, so, so we're, are we talking about the same kind of sampling challenges, uh, Quentin? At Edgina, as we had at Comet Well. At Edgina, what's really exciting is that the gold we see is derived from these conglomerates. But what we're focused on at Edgina uh, in the short term are the the lag deposits at surface. These are unconsolidated gravels that contain uh, what looks like a considerable amount of gold that's been washed out of the conglomerates over over time. Mm -hmm. So these are gravels that sit right at surface. What's really exciting is it means we can get out there, we can dig dirt, we can actually uh, evaluate the grades and the, the recoverability and other aspects of the gold. Uh, you know, with our with conventional equipment, it doesn't require uh, collecting both samples and sending them to a lab. Okay, so this is very exciting for us. Uh, I outlined plans of what we plan to do at Edgina over the short term, and then ultimately we can see uh, moving it towards a bulk mining, or excuse me, a bulk sampling, I, I must say. Uh, scenario very quickly. It's a granted mining lease. It is in the Aboriginal Reserve. We've got to be cognizant of that. And we we want to build a, a a good working relationship with the Aboriginal community in the area. Uh, but but we do have mining uh, license, which allows us to go out and and do some of the hard yards uh, in a, in a very short time frame. Mm-hmm. So the mining permits that was a big plus for you. Then uh, the mining leases, I guess you call them. Uh, what is your next step then, Edgina? Will you be will you be providing some assays? Do you think in the near future, or, or what can we look forward to as investors from Edgina? Okay, the way the way the uh, data will be presented from Edgina, 
Um, okay, there's there's two types of gold. There's uh, coarse nuggets, which which have traditionally been found using metal detectors. Uh, we're not going to. We're, our, our plan is to not go out and systematically trench and look for nuggets with metal detectors. Okay, what we're most interested in initially is evaluating the fine gold component. Okay, there's fine ah. gold in these gravel uh, deposits just as there is coarse gold. All right, so our goal will be to evaluate the fine grain gold, see what kind of uh, gold levels we have in these gravels, and then we'll have to bulk sample or bulk mine it next year to evaluate the overall grade, you know, including the coarse gold component. But but I, I would say the, the initial data that we get around the fine gold in these gravels will be very interesting, very exciting. Uh, we, we already, as I said in the news release today, we've already seen uh, significant, significant fine grain gold in these gravels, and I, I feel that that bodes well for, uh, you know, there, there being a, a good representation of, of gold at that level. So the fine gold is something that you didn't have over at Comet Well, uh, very much of it anyway, except exactly. for some uh, a little bit of it around the nuggets. Uh, so, so what Correct. you're saying is it may be potentially less challenging in some ways to start to uh, to, to accumulate or to assess a a, a resource potentially. Yes, both the fine gold and the fact that this is free digging material and at surface. Okay, we're not talking about hard rock. We're talking about material you can go out and excavate, you know, with a small excavator. We don't have have to do a lot of the really complicated technical work to get answers. Um, since you woke the world up to the Whitwaters Rand like potential of Western Australia, there have been a a lot of companies staking ground around there. And uh, are there any other companies that might have any geological advantage over over what you've I mean you were the first one out there you were the you were the person Quentin as far as I know the only person that came out with this idea of of the the origin of gold mineralization I mean we're talking 120 kilometers to the east are are we talking about generally the same event that took place uh, the precipitation event as you talked about on the show many times before do you see this whole basin this huge basin as being pretty much the same, uh, I mean, that's really simplifying, and I realize you said there's three different kinds of, of gold mineralization at this at this deposit, but is this, this is a huge system I think we're looking at, right? Absolutely enormous. That is, that is correct. And, you know, air, in space, it is a very large system. The Pilbara Craton, 600 kilometers across, is blanketed by the Fortescue group, and many, many gold occurrences have been found straight away across the whole uh, craton, the piece, this old old piece of crust. Okay, so at Comet Well, we've uh, explored the basal conglomerates. Those basal conglomerates are remarkably present at Edgina. That's what's kicking off the gold. The, it's effectively the same conglomerate package. Now think about that for a minute. 120 kilometers away, and we have the same conglomerate package, same age. Wow! And it's yielding similar gold nuggets to to those at Comet Well. Now <laughs> I want to be very cautious here because I know some people have jumped up and oh well, you can start multiplying, you get billions of no. ounces and this and that. Look, no. I want to be very, you know, very, um, we'll, we'll, we'll say tone tone down things. Okay. What well, I, I want think people I, to understand I, is that these these deposits are large, but we've got to we've got to evaluate them using proper science to figure out what uh, economic gold there is in this system. Okay, it is a big one. We got a big one, but we need to do 
good work to show its potential. Um, Quentin, uh, we're just about out of time here, but how much, how well funded are you to carry on, and and when might we see some more results uh, actually going back to Comet Well? Are are we likely to see some more bulk sample assays anytime soon from Comet Well and from that area over to the west, or to the yeah to the yeah. west? Okay, the two questions. First of all, cash position we have uh, somewhere just under sixty million at present, uh, so we're in very good shape to advance things. Secondly, uh, as far as further results, what we're doing right now is evaluating the data that we've come back, uh, that's come back from Comet Well. Uh, we're looking at the, the requirements to get this mineralization report uh, de- developed and delivered. Uh, and then we're also evaluating, you know, internally in the company at the board level, uh, how much more data and expense and time uh, we need to spend there. Now, I don't have a firm answer for you right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we we do feel the answers that we got from the bulk sampling uh, give us a reasonable indicative tr- grade that can be used to justify, uh, say, tr- trial mining and a mineralization report uh, to to uh, claim a, a mining lease at mm-hmm. Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, it, it seems to me that uh, notwithstanding the share price, which is down a lot from where it was last year when I spoke to you, uh, that things are really moving along. Perhaps expectations were a little bit overinflated uh, based on some early assays. But all I can say is that, you know, as a person who looks at a lot of gold projects, I don't know of too many open pit or surface mineable projects that have grades that are superior to what you're looking at here and with apparently easy metallurgy. Any comments on that? Uh, look, I, I think in general the conglomerates of the Pilbara, they tend to be coarse grain, tend to have, you know, they're they're a real headbang when it comes to to figuring out grade and things like this. Right. But boy, I'll right. tell you, when it comes to to potential economics of recovery and things like that, these could be very very favorable. A lot of coarse gold means a lot of gravity recovery. That can, you know, as a as that alone, that that can make a, a project very uh, high margin potentially. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Quentin, for updating us on this. We'll certainly be keeping track of what you're doing down under with your project, and uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us today. All right, folks, well, don't go away. Uh, We're going to go to commercial break, but Doug Nolan uh, of the McIlvaney Tactical Short Fund will be with us to tell us how he's positioning the fund to weather the financial storms that apparently are lying ahead of us. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Doug Nolan. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol GOLD on the TSX and GLDLF on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, 
and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Doug Nolan. Well, he actually was on this show uh, with when John Rubino hosted it when I was on vacation in, in Europe last summer. Uh, but I've known Doug for quite a while. I've known of him uh, when he was at the Prudent Bear Fund uh, and always enjoyed his, his work. He, he writes uh, an awful lot of uh, material, a lot of a lot of very good things in terms of keeping up with what's going on in the markets. Uh, in fact, I think if there's any one place you might go to to try to keep up with all that's really significant uh, globally in the markets, uh, it would be to uh, to his blog that he has at uh, uh, at the McIlvany Wealth Management uh, site, and I think it's the uh, the Credit Bubble Bulletin page that you want to download or you want to click on to when you go to the McIlvany Wealth Management website. And uh, Doug has really been known for his uh, bearishness. He uh, told me before we went on live that he uh, professionally has been a bear. Uh, He doesn't find a whole lot to be optimistic about long term, I guess, in terms of the the current market or the market condition. Uh, And I kind of understand that because Doug is an Austrian school thinker, and those of us who subscribe to the Austrian School of Economics believe that we are headed in the wrong direction by the creation of money and credit out of thin air. It distorts markets unbelievably, uh, and yet it's a, it's the narcotic that seems to get the establishment through, uh, keep them high, keep them believing in, um, uh, in, in non-realities, as it were. At least that's the way I see it. Uh, uh, Doug, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Jay. Thanks a lot for having me on. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw out there, uh, you know, I started my, my Credit Bubble Bulletin back in 1999, and that's before they were even called blogs. So it's been about uh-huh. 20 years. <laughs> and when I first started it, you know, I thought, okay, I was convinced there was a bubble, right? We had changed, financed all the securitization and derivatives into Wall Street finance. I was convinced it was a bubble. And I thought bubble would be in the title maybe for a year or two. And here we are uh, 20 years later. And, and, you know, I've been chronicling this every, almost every week for 20 years. And uh, bubble's still in the title, unfortunately. Well, you know, Doug, this is what really is, is difficult for those of us who believe that you can't create money by printing it. You can't create wealth by printing money or even less than printing money these days, just creating digits. Uh, and and th- what's made it difficult is that it is this long. You know, you would think that the system would have imploded, and it started to on several of occasions, but 
how have they been able to keep the ball in the air so long? Yeah, well, to me, it's this great experiment, not only in unfettered finance. And if you think of the way finance used to be, it was mainly bank loans, right, where banks were restricted to capital and reserve requirements. And finance was fairly well contained. And even before that, you had, you know, the gold standard and Bretton Woods. You had these different regimes that restrained finance. But we changed it and and had all this non-bank credit creation where there was no restraints whatsoever. And early on, it was clear that this this type of finance was very unstable. If you think back, uh, you know, we had the bond market bust in 94 and then Mexico and uh, Southeast Asia booms and busts. And then the global financial system almost came unwound in 1998 with the collapse of Russian long-term capital management. Yeah. And, it, you know, all along, I expected authorities would, would go in and try to, uh, you know, more regulate, try to contain this type of finance. But instead, we started this experiment in monetary management where the central banks came in to work to stabilize this unstable finance and all it did was allow this finance to get bigger and the bubbles to get bigger. And then we saw, you know, the, the, the terrible crisis in 2008. And what did they do after that? We didn't learn any lessons from this. Instead, you know, we do, uh, you know, massive QE, zero interest rates, and, and all of this not to try to stabilize finance, but to try to reflate finance, try to reflate asset markets and credit generally. And it's just led to what I've called, well, I referred to it back in 2009 as the global government finance bubble. The bubble mm-hmm. went global and went across asset classes. It, it, it's basically you know, the whole system globally. And I, I hesitate to call it a system because it's not much of a system. But, uh, you know, the whole global financial infrastructure went into, into this massive bubble. And why it's so dangerous, Jay, is this bubble... It's not in mortgage credit. It's not in speculative credit. It's gone to the heart of money and credit, right? It's in central bank credit. It's in sovereign debt. And that's why I worry about this bubble, because when this bubble bursts, this is the, you know, I called it the granddaddy of all bubbles. I don't know how they reflate after the next crisis. But uh, anyway, hopefully I'm proven wrong on this. Well, you would have probably thought that after the before the previous crisis, though, wouldn't have you, Doug? I mean, you would have thought, I would have thought, you know, after the, um, you know, we had, you, you, you just went through the, the 2000 uh, uh, dot-com collapse. Uh, then they, uh, you know, and as you say, they didn't, they didn't try to pull back credit. They didn't try to regulate it or hold it down. They just expanded it. Uh, and it's like a narcotic to try to, to get a, an addict uh, through the next, you know, to avoid any kind of, um, of, of a decline, uh, do, do you think they can do it again? You think they can go on? A, I, I mean, I think you know we've had Rickards on this show, and he he believes that the only institution that's left the next time will be the um, the IMF, uh, and that, that that will go to some sort of a some sort of a uh, you know a, a global credit, a global monetary system, SDRs, I well, guess. Yeah, I in. That's a possibility, but I'm not sure, uh, you know, if Washington, if, if the U.S. government has an appetite to watch the IMF grow into a multi-multi-trillion dollar institution, uh, perhaps. And that's another worrying part about the, the, the environment today and, 
and what this means when this bubble bursts. I, the last bubble, there were there were synchronized uh, policy making from the central banks, from governments. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a much different atmosphere, uh, as we yeah. you know, and and also, um, I think the only balance sheets that will be big enough to try because what happens here is when the bubble bursts, you have all this speculative credit, you know, call it the hedge funds, banks, you know, they borrowed money to, to speculate in securities and they get in trouble and they have to liquidate. Somebody has yeah. to buy them. So mm-hmm. I think it'll be the central bank balance sheets. I, I, um, what will be different though, I think in this next crisis, the central bankers will be seen as part of the problem instead of the solution. Though, you know, the, the opinions will be, well, look what central banks have created through QE and, and, all this aggressive stimulus. So I think central banks will probably be more restrained, at least in the early parts of the crisis. So again, that's, I, I don't see uh, the next reflationary source outside of the central bank balance sheets. And what could really, really cause trouble is if, if the markets start to protest the aggressive balance sheet growth by the central banks and, and interest rates start to go up, especially for long-term sovereign debt, treasuries, et cetera, that will really compound the situation because in the past they've had the freedom to do whatever they want with their balance sheets uh, because the market was cooperating, uh, interest rates were going down, yields were going down. In the next crisis, if, if yields surprise and don't go down, uh, central banks have a much, much more difficult job ahead of them. You mentioned the, uh, a different atmosphere. It most certainly seems to be the case because 2008-2009, the Chinese stepped in and stimulated in a major way, bought a lot of, uh, a, a lot of commodities and things and helped to, to reflate, reinflate the global economy. This time, and I don't know if, it's, uh, if you can put the blame all on Donald Trump or not, but certainly there is more of a geopolitical divide, I would suggest, now than there was in 2008-2009 that might get in the way of, uh, of this coordination, even if they have the wherewithal, the financial strength to, to coordinate. Do you see that? Do you see growing geopolitical issues as something to be worried about? Yeah, absolutely, Jay. And the way I look at these bubbles, these are mechanism to, mechanisms to redistribute and destroy wealth. You don't mm-hmm. really see it until the bubble bursts. That's when you realize that wealth is right. destroyed during, during the boom. And that's always a problem. And we saw it in this country after the mortgage finance bubble because, you know, a lot of people, you know, lost a lot of money unfairly. They bought homes and, you know, the, the system was, uh, you know, the bubble period just redistributed wealth from a, a lot of unsuspecting, innocent folks out there. And society mm-hmm. has paid a price for this. I worry when the global bubble bursts, that will lead to, you know, significant geopolitical tension. And we're already seeing it, right? When the pie starts to get smaller, then everybody worries about their size of the pie. I don't expect that we'll be cooperating closely with the Chinese during the next crisis. I I fear China has a historic bubble, and I think there are cracks in that bubble today. And and I fully anticipate Beijing will blame the U.S. when their bubble bursts, right? They'll they'll blame foreigners. And and now the administration has set this up to be a pretty easy scapegoat for Chinese officials. So, yeah, very, very different backdrop than what we saw going into 2008. Yeah. Uh, Well, we have uh, tremendous amounts of um, gold seemingly being imported into China from all that I read 
from the west to the east. Uh, we're seeing an alliance between Russia and China. We're seeing uh, the Chinese build up the infrastructure to trade with Asian countries, with uh, even with uh, with Russia and European countries, India. Uh, they're setting up different, um, you know, both both financial infrastructure as well as physical roads, highways, bridges, and so forth. Um, do you, I mean, do you, do you see a, a very major potential decline in the in the uh, in the primacy of the United States uh, as a superpower, as a world power, and might that also have some impact on on our currency at some point in time? Yeah, great questions and. I certainly see you know, there is an obvious move to to set up a, a non-dollar uh, system globally, uh, led by Russia, China, and, and others. I mean, that's clear. So I think from that standpoint, uh, the dollar will have uh, less international reserve status going forward just because we'll, we'll be in this bipolar world. Um, this bipolar world, I'm not sure how that bipolar world handles a crisis, um, and I've made the point where we've kind of had an arms race in bubbles, where this mm-hmm. bubble finance has led to uh, enormous geopolitical influence in China. Um, and if their bubble bursts, then, then you know, they'll have waning uh, you know, financial, economic, military uh, power globally. So, there, you know, there's a lot of factors involved here and why these countries, uh, you know, want to control their finance, want to get out of the dollar system. Uh, to rid themselves of, you know, the the, the impact of, of U.S. policies. And also, I think uh, they see a lot of problems coming, and I, I think they're trying to batten down the hatches and get, get ready to stabilize their own systems when, you know, the, the global finance gets in trouble. You know, I should tell my listeners that uh, I, I believe, Doug, you have a daily blog or at least a, you – you really sort of scour the planet and have important news items that are posted every day, I believe, and then you do a more comprehensive or a more uh, more commentary in your weekly blog. But um, certainly, you you follow what goes on in all all over the world. In Europe, uh, one of the things that I found very interesting was when uh, President Obama was putting together the uh, he was putting together the um, uh, the nuclear deal with Iran. And he was he was able to get a lot of the European countries, China, India, and other countries, to sanction or to boycott or not to trade with Iran to try to put pressure on Iran. He finally gets the deal signed, uh, and the neocons in the United States are trying to keep it from happening. And Vice President Kerry made a speech uh, in which he suggested that. Uh, if you try to stop this, it's going to be potentially very problematic for the dollar. He said, look, uh, we've got the Iranians to agree to a deal now. The Europeans and other countries have sacrificed far more than the United States has to try to get this deal put through. And now you want to renege on this deal? And he suggested that this would be a threat to the hegemony of the of the U.S. dollar, the, the, the status of the world's reserve currency. And then, of course, what happens is Donald Trump comes along, and he does exactly what he was warning. And now we're seeing the Europeans are very upset about this. They get together with the um, with the Chinese and the Russians at the United Nations here about a month ago or so, and they start to to uh, contrive and work together to find a way around the use of the U.S. dollar. 
any thoughts about how serious this may be, the divide, the potential divide with between the United States and our closest allies in Europe? Right, and it gets right back to our own two political parties here in this country that, that you know, their views of the world are so radically different. So I think yeah. the rest of the world now has to adjust and say, okay, every four years we can have a radical change in U.S. policy. We can throw out old, old treaties and bring in new treaties. And I think this yeah. just leads to this feeling that the U.S. is not a dependable overseer of a global yeah. system. Yeah, or partner or, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can't have your reserve currency. You can't have the U.S. as the, you know, the, kind of the, the dominant financial player in the world if you don't have any clarity on what their policies would be every four years. So, I, unfortunately, I think this is just, you know, all symptomatic of, of the fragmentation of, of politics here in the U.S. globally and how it's going to be very difficult to come to a consensus uh, as far as how to, you know, approach Iran, how to approach a crisis, how to approach anything, how to approach China. How, how do you do that today, right? Uh, this instability of, of views. Doug, with three minutes left here, what are we to do about all this? I mean, it seems to me uh, the equity markets look like they're coming under pressure now. Do you think this is the start of a very significant bear market? That's the first question. The second one I want to ask you concerns the debt markets. It was the 1970s, and and I just saw uh, an article somewhere on Zero Hedge. Someone was talking about the fact that we're starting to see both stocks and bonds go down together a lot of times these days. Do you think we may be nearing the end of confidence in the fiat money system, in the monetary system, at least from a cyclical point of view, uh, and that we could be heading for some very difficult times in the paper assets? And if so, what should investors be doing? Yeah, again, great questions, Jay. Yeah, I mean, my view is this is a multi-decade experiment, a multi-decade bubble that's gone global. And I expect this experiment, unfortunately, to fail, the bubble to fail. I think I've, I've written as much. We now have important cracks in the global bubble. I think the bubble has been pierced. I think over recent weeks now, we've seen what started at the periphery, make it to the core, de-risking, deleveraging. So I fear we're at the beginning of a very difficult period. And as you said, I, you know, in the fiat Currency is one way to look at it, but I certainly believe that we could have a crisis of confidence in financial assets generally, globally. We could have a liquidity crisis globally. We could have a crisis of confidence in, in policymaking. So I think it's time to hunker down. Um, you know, it, it, it's, I think being very risk averse, I, I wouldn't you know, be involved in, in the stock market. I'd be very cautious with debt. I think it's a great time to pay down debt, and I think it's time to just get mentally prepared that things are going to change. Because for the past you know, number of years, we've convinced ourselves that everything's great, that central banks have it under control. I don't believe they have it under control at all. Well, and you are certainly right. Uh, we've bounced back on a couple of major, uh, major problems in the past 2000, 2008, uh, but it may not be so, uh, so possible the next time. And so... Uh, with 30 seconds, people should do what? They should get out of debt, stay out of the equity markets, uh, own yeah, tangibles, own gold. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Gold? Yeah, I, gold? yeah. yeah. yeah we, so I, I didn't speak enough about precious metals and gold, but absolutely, yeah. there has to be a place for that in, in every portfolio today. So far, right. it hasn't and, done as well. The dollar's been strong, but gold, yeah. yeah. It will have its day, no doubt about that. And it's mwealthm.com. M as in Mary, wealth, M as in Mary.com. Go there to uh, take advantage of all that Doug Nolan uh, writes uh, daily and weekly. Thank you so much for being with us, Doug. It's a pleasure. I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Great to be on with you, Jay. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, folks. Thank you very much. Well, folks, that's it for this week. Next week, uh, F. William Engdahl will be with me to discuss the politics behind climate change as well as the impact uh, that that may have on the global economy. I also expect to have Michael Oliver and perhaps a a surprise guest next week. So until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow klondikegoldcorp.com. 